The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Have fintech upstarts lost their mojo? And will the one MBD scandal spur Malaysia's prime minister to reinvent himself as a general election looms? These are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Uh, good day. All right. So America's largest banks have just had their best quarter in years. That gives them more resources to throw at taking more of their business online and to combat the threat from the new players. So, Anthony, you've been looking at both sides of this debate, the traditional lenders and the fintech disruptors, and it seems that you're coming down on the side of the banks. I know. It's terrible, isn't it? I I feel much shame. Um, Although, to be fair, I'm I'm not saying that all of these newer players are going to fall by the wayside and and disappear. I think what we're looking at here is that um, the banks are now at a position where they have both got past the financial crisis and also got enough financial wherewithal to invest. On top of that, they've been developing and testing and are now ready to show a lot of the products they've got, which can compete with in many respects and even do better than some of the, the, the what the fintech players have been doing. Okay, so fintech is a very broad definition. Yeah. Why don't you just kind of hit upon a few of the different types of companies that this uh, that comprise this sector? Yeah, so you've got ones that, that you and I um, could possibly see, so the lending clubs, the SOFIs of this world, which do lending. Um, you've got um, payments platforms, that, some of which we'll know, like PayPal, uh, which also owns uh, Venmo. Uh, you've got uh, Stripe, which is more more does the plumbing uh, for a lot of payments for businesses. So it depends really where you where you want to look uh, of a very broad range of funds. I'm, I'm excluding anything to do with investment banking. This is purely I'm looking here purely at retail. Okay, so um, you were recently in San Francisco for a big fintech conference. I mean, what was the feel? I mean, did you get the, the sense that um, a lot of these companies, these upstarts, if you will. Um, are losing steam and the banks are getting their acts together or um, that it's just they the banks are just bigger, have more heft and muscle? And well, I think it's actually a, a mixture of all of it. So if I compare it to being at a, 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 another big conference in Vegas in late 2015, where, you know, the hype, the buzz, the feel, everything about it was just, you know, everyone felt really excited. And there were even some, some what felt like pretty major amount, announcements. This time... Not so much. Okay, it was mostly about lending, um, as opposed to the broad brush the one in Vegas is. Um, they did have a sideline on blockchain, which didn't gather that much uh, interest from a lot of other people there on the lending side. But it does tell me that you know, if you're the organizer of a conference on online lending and you feel the need to have a third of it on blockchain, it means that something's shifting. And that I think is that the the, the online lending industry, at least, is. I'm not sure. I don't think it's shrinking. I, I think parts of it's still growing very much. It's just that the 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 verve, the vibe, that the interest around it has matured somewhat. And now we're looking at companies which are saying, like Lending Club, even last year was saying, you know, we want other products. We can't just be a lender. I mean, if you're a lender, um, all you do is, you know, every two, three, four years, you get a client coming through. Okay. So um, this is a good segue to talk about um, Goldman Sachs' latest effort. Marcus, which you wrote about recently. Um, so tell us about this and kind of what the advantage is, because this seems like a very basic business model question. Yeah, it is. And it's one that Goldman has ignored for the lifetime of its uh, of its existence as a, as a company, like 150 odd years or so. Um, 
it's basically a retail bank. Initially, it was set up as an online lender. Now, Marcus, just so everyone knows, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. It sounds like a perfume, but the name Marcus actually is the first name of one of the founders, Mr. Goldman. Um, so initially, it was set up just to lend money um, a year and a half ago. End of last year, they put the 20 billion or so now they've got of deposits together. So it's basically a retail bank, um, but it's online. Uh, and it's doing the same kind of consumer lending that lending clubs and SoFi's are doing. So it's competing with them there. But of course, they have deposits, and those deposits are far cheaper way of funding those loans than going to institutional investors or selling securitizations or whatever else. So basically, the other interesting thing about that is it gives the person or the customer an opportunity to keep coming back, right? Because yeah, like exactly. that's that's probably one of the issues with a SoFi or a lending club. Because yeah, I mean, like so you consolidate yeah. your loans once and then maybe that's, kind of it. that's it. Yeah, I mean, SoFi's tried to get around that by expanding the kind of loans it does from just student loan refinancings to mortgages, consumer loans. It's trying to get into wealth management. But it and lending club have both had scandals, which have kind of hurt them as well in recent years. Um, but yeah, what, what people are now talking about is how do we make sure that we have our clients coming back to us. Now, if you're a lending club, you've got to think we've got to have other products. Maybe we've got to start talking about um, how to help people manage their debt. Um, the former CEO of lending club, Renaud Laplanche, who lost his job after um, a, a mis-selling scandal, is back with Upgrade this year, which is precisely showing here is a way, this is what will happen if you get this loan, this is what it will do to your credit score. All very useful stuff. Goldman Sachs' Marcus unit has just bought um, Clarity Money, which uh, helps people aggregate all of their various financial accounts hmm. and even does things like, look, can you go on here and find out, you know, here, here are your subscriptions to magazines and everything else. Do you want to cancel some of them? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, and banks are doing that too. Wells Fargo's got a similar thing called, um, I think, Control Tower. Bank of America's getting into it. City last week at the conference unveiled its own app, which will allow anyone, not just a customer, to aggregate all of its financial information. So they're all trying to do this because that way, not only do you get customers coming back to you rather than going to each separate app that they've got, but you, you know, you're also saying to them, you know, we can give you all the other tools you need to feel valued and wanted. And this idea of an emotional tie to your to your bank was coming up a lot last year. And as a as a non millennial, it kind of rankles with me. But you know, I get what they're trying to do. Yeah. Okay. So, um, do you expect a lot of consolidation then in, in the industry with with some of these older upstarts? If you Frank, frankly, I would have expected more by now, especially in the lending space, which has had. A fair number of issues over the past couple of years, from the mis-selling scandal at Lending Club to um, institutional investors getting worried about rising defaults at some of them. What we saw, though, was more um, companies just disappearing, just mm -hmm. folding. Um, and I think the issue there is, as, as one of the fintech guys said to me last week, is you know a lot of these platforms, because they only have people coming every now and again, aren't necessarily, or it's very hard to put an, a, a, an easy number on them as a going concern. Mm -hmm. Not that they're necessarily going to fail. Um, but if you think this is good, but it's not reached scale, great. But if you're only getting you know, a, a, a customer coming through once every three or four years, what am I actually buying apart from the people and the technology? So, you know, why don't I just wait till it fails or gets close to failing and buy the people and technology, which is what Goldman did both with Bond Street, an online lender last year, and with Final, which should uh, try to set up a, a new credit card product. Hmm. I think that's more of what we're going to see or things like Clarity Money, which offer financial tools. Uh, to help people manage their money better. I think you know, if you can find something that's, that really does do you think you can't do yourself, that's where you'll do it. Otherwise, I think it's a bit like the financial crisis 10 years ago. You know, the, 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 the strong will wait until the weak have basically failed and pick them up on the cheap. Lovely. All right, Anthony, thanks for that. With that, let's hand it over to our colleagues in Asia. Thanks, Jen. 
All eyes are on Malaysia right now because Prime Minister Najib Razak has just called a general election. The poll is an opportunity for him to repair his reputation, which took a battering in the 1MDB scandal, where billions of dollars from the Sovereign Wealth Fund was allegedly laundered and pumped into everything overseas, from the Wolf of Wall Street movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio to a painting by Picasso. I'm Yuna Galani, Breaking Views Associate Editor in Mumbai, and I'm joined by my colleague, Clara Ferreira-Marquez, who is based in Singapore and just back from Kuala Lumpur. Before we talk about the poll that is due to be held on May the 9th, which it looks like Najib will quite comfortably win, Clara, how has this guy even managed to hang on to power until now? It's really quite amazing. Well, um, he's certainly taken a battering, and the wider 1MDB scandal hasn't cast Malaysia in a particularly flattering light either. Remember, at the end of last year, Jeff Sessions, the US Attorney General, called it kleptocracy at its worst. And 1MDB, just as a reminder, was part of Najib's One Malaysia strategy back when he came to power in 2009. Um, It was supposed to encourage uh, foreign investment driving the broader economy towards the high-income status that they target, um, it didn't do that. Um, Najib denies any wrongdoing, and the Malaysian Attorney General has cleared him of any offence. But abroad, the investigation continues, yeah. including in the US, where the Department of Justice is trying to seize about, it's about $1.7 billion in assets that uh, they say were illegally acquired through money from uh, diverted from 1MDB. But the most interesting thing, coming back from Kuala Lumpur just last week, is how little 1MTB actually matters to voters in Malaysia. It's really not about that on the ground, which is, you know, for those of us reading this from overseas, it's quite spectacular. On the ground, it's really an economic poll. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I must say, like, from overseas, this looks like really kind of classic strongman playbook kind of stuff. You know, it reminds me a little bit of, like, what's going on in the U.S. with President Trump, you know, this investigation into the Russian election meddling and alleged collusion, you know, because Trump basically, like, there's always speculation that Trump is going to fire the special counsel, Robert Mueller, um, with Trump calling the probe a witch hunt. And, of course, that's one of the things. It sort of has an echo with what happened in Malaysia because, of course, one of the ways that Najib sort of survived this scandal or appears to have survived this scandal is that he fired the deputy... Um, Prime Minister, but also the Attorney General and a number of other detractors um, before being cleared by the current Attorney General. So it's sort of, um, I can see why we've sort of come round to to this situation. But, you you know, you're saying that 1MDB doesn't really matter anymore in Malaysia. I mean, I think that's quite a surprise for people outside. But, you know, like, if they don't care about this, what is it, this $3.5 billion that was misappropriated from the public purse and sort of funneled everywhere overseas, then, you know, what do Malaysians care about? It's not that people don't care. I mean, we don't want to be too glib about it. Probably the intelligentsia, the educated classes, the middle classes, they do care. There just aren't enough of them. So for the average Malaysian, Malaysia remains a deeply unequal uh, country in economic terms with the rural areas. The difference between the rural areas and Kuala Lumpur is really marked. Kuala Lumpur is super sophisticated, fancy malls, all of that. And you look at the minimum wage, the plantation workers, really vast gap. For them, it's really about inflation. So we got pretty serious inflation in 2017 that really hit the cost of living and jobs. Those are the two biggest concerns 
um, on the ground. Right. So, so, if the, so if those are the two biggest concerns, what makes us or so confident or what makes us confident at all that he will win the election? Well, there's a couple of things, really. I mean, probably just one step back to think about who he's running against. So this is probably the most brutal contest that Malaysia has seen since independence because it's Najib and Najib is competing against Mahathir Mohamed. Most of us will remember Mahathir as being on the other side. So he was UMNO, which is the United Malay National Organization, which is what um, Najib runs. So he switched sides. Um, and not only did he switch sides, and after being 22 years prime minister for UMNO, he's also 92. And his partner is Anwar wow. Ibrahim, who is still in jail, but, you know, obviously a supporter of, of, of the opposition coalition. So I guess the question is, so which side, neither of them have a particularly good um, reform um, track record. Uh, Mahathir certainly concentrated power uh, during his years so uh, at the helm so it's pretty difficult to to say that he would he would particularly launch into that but just why why would Najib win on the economic side well he's if you look at the electoral promises he is promising a lot of money to the people who traditionally vote for UMNO and because of the way um, and who, and who are they who are the people who traditionally vote for Najib and the party that has basically dominated Malaysian politics since its independence? So there, I would say there are two main constituencies. One is civil service, and that is a huge part of the population. And then the other are the rural voters, and particularly the, the plantation, anyone on the plantations. So this is the palm oil plantations right, so in Malaysia. You kind of have that, so you have that classic kind of urban-rural sort of divide, maybe, in, in Malaysia that we, we see elsewhere in the world. Um, but like, so, I mean, one of the things that happened to Najib, I mean, as you, as you said as well, I mean, you know, his reputation was just ruined, um, at least internationally by 1MDB. Um, you know, how, if that's had an effect domestically, I mean, is, do you think he's interested at all in trying to repair that reputation or reinvent himself? I mean, what, does, what kind of opportunity does this election win represent for him? If, well, he has an opportunity. I mean, it's difficult to say how desperate he will be to take it. He certainly has an opportunity. And back in 2009, 2010, he really did show, I mean, he was talking the talk. If you read the coverage from the time, it was all about, you know, the new man, um, reform, uh, removing the state from uh, corporate life in Malaysia. And remember, that really is very, very prevalent, this long arm of the Malaysian state. Um, he talked about rolling back perks that exist for indigenous people and Malays in, in Malaysia. Um, and if you remember, it's a fairly ethnically uh, divided country. So the majority Malay versus the, the Chinese and other population. The Malay have quite a lot of advantages that Ji was trying to roll back. So he talked, a, he did certainly talk a good game there. So, you know, he's at least has has done, um, has talked about it before. He's also done a few of these things, not everything and not nearly enough. Um, he has put a very a well-respected turnaround um, executive in charge of the development and performance unit. This is Idris Jala. He used to run Malaysia Airlines well before all the various problems that they had. Um, and he has introduced things like GST, goods and service tax, absolutely desperately needed, very unpopular. He did and introduce very it. Very unpopular, Extremely, right? Extremely, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things the opposition promises to remove it. 
almost an impossibility, but um, given how much it contributes to the Malaysian economy. And the other thing he did was he did roll back the perks. So, you know, he has shown some indication how easy it will be to do after a messy election like this. And let's remember he did you know, redraw some of the constituencies. He's introduced uh, legislation against fake news. I mean, really, this is pretty messy stuff. So you will owe a lot of political debt after something like this. So it's it won't be easy, but certainly there is some hope. Yeah, and so he's got a, like a well, a decent, a, like a fast-growing economy on his side, a ragbag, uh, messy opposition that's split and divided, and um, and 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 so and that makes us pretty sure that you know the, this election will go in his favour. I, I just want to ask you before we um, wrap up. I want to ask you about China. I mean, China played a big role in helping Malaysia out of the one MDB crisis. I mean, how has that relationship blossomed, and how is it playing into the election or the sort of the, you know the economic future of Malaysia as we see it now? Well, Malaysia is pretty much at the centre of the one belt, one road debate. So. Um, in Southeast Asia, it really sees itself as the gateway. If you think about the other countries in Southeast Asia and their relationship with China, it's not always a particularly easy one. So China has helped Malaysia come out of the 1MDB quagmire. They have been investing very heavily in infrastructure, so this rail line to the east coast of Malaysia that will really help develop uh, the eastern coastline. Um, a lot of money has come in. Now, there is concern in Malaysia, and this is, you know, within Najib's party as well, about the debt that that will involve, you know, both political and actual financial debt. You know, how do we accept China's money without really becoming indebted to them? And this is a problem in all the Belt and Road countries, but Malaysia is really discussing it to the point that the opposition, led by Mahathir, is saying that they would revisit a lot of these contracts. Yeah, well, it's quite an extraordinary um, uh, relationship. And I think uh, China's uh, role is, uh, as you say, no different to what's happening in the in the rest of Asia at the moment. But, um, you know, thanks, Clara, for your insight on this extraordinary tale of scandal and survival. Now back to our colleagues in New York. Great. Thanks for that, Una and Clara. That's our show for this week. We doff our hats to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. And join us again next week for another edition.